Good morning. We're going to begin this morning reading from the Word of God, 1 Corinthians 7. But before I read, I want you to ask yourself, and you can do that as you're opening your Bibles or your phone, um, I want you to ask yourself, why am I here today? It's a question I just thought when I was standing over there about to walk up here. I didn't plan to ask you to ask yourself anything. But just think about why you're here. Like why, not just why are you here, but why are we here? What are we doing? And, and allow that question to remain unanswered by me. But hopefully, if the Spirit is within you, you can have some sense of affirmation as to reasons why you might be here. And if you don't have an answer, maybe by the end of the sermon, God will have shown you why you're here today. But overall, let me say I'm grateful you are here. And I'm hopeful that us coming together has meaning beyond this meeting time. All right. So let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're now in verse 10. We've been working through this book for some time, but we're in verse 10 now. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is not an unbeliever or who who is an unbeliever, he should he and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy by his wife because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will, you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I praise You for the work that You've done long before any of us were here to give us this Word. I thank You that, uh, that, that the truth that lies in it can be such a strong foundation It can be a building block. It can lead us to an eternal life free from the sins of this world and with our Father forever. I thank You for truth that has already been proclaimed because we've read Your Word. And I pray that You would lead us this morning as we dive into the difficulties of this passage to see greater meaning for our lives. And I know that You are faithful. I pray that You would show us You're faithful this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So we have been working through 1 Corinthians, considering what it means to have a gospel-saturated life, gospel saturation. And hopefully we have some idea of what that might mean, but this concept of the gospel, the good news, is, is underlying and overarching all of, all of the Christian life. And, and by that I mean it's, it's foundational, it's the foundation, and it's the comprehensive sum of life for the Christian. It's everything that you do for the Christian. 
But the gospel in itself isn't everything. It's just necessary for everything. It's, it's the means and it's the end. The gospel is our hope and it's our peace. It's Christ. The, the, the living, breathing, dying, resurrected, now living again, Christ is the gospel. It's past, it's present, it's future, it's the promise, it's the process, and it's the payoff. The gospel is our everything if you're a Christian. But if you don't believe the gospel, you just know it, it doesn't benefit you at all. So there's nuance here, and there's, there's deeper things to discover here. There's more truth to uncover, though the gospel is our greatest truth. And if you don't have faith in Christ, then there's your evidence that you don't believe the gospel. We're hopeless without it. We're helpless without it. And before believing the gospel, we were all helpless sinners, children of disobedience, children of wrath, dead in our sin. But God, being rich in mercy, did not see it fit to condemn His children. So He made a way for us to be to share life with Him, to be with Him for eternity. He spared us the wrath due to us because He so loved us that He sent His only begotten Son to bear the wrath we deserve. And Christ died and was raised, and in His death and resurrection, the sinless Son pleased the Father. And the sacrifice was sufficient. So by grace, we have been saved. And we are enabled to place our faith in Christ. And following Him in all of life, we are no longer condemned in any of life. We are filled with His Spirit and being conformed to the image of Christ. That's, that's the, the root of the gospel. Yet it spreads and it grows and it produces fruit in our life. That's this maturing aspect of the gospel in the Christian life. And just like physical and emotional maturing, we grow stronger. We grow better. We grow. There's less mystery about it than the day you were born again. There's less mystery about life than the day you were born into this world. Things were confusing at first. All you knew how to do was scream and poop yourself. But now you can function as a human being in the world because of maturing. In the same way, we mature spiritually. We grow in Christ. We are being conformed into His image, and this is a work of the Spirit within us. We have new minds. We have new hearts. We have new hands, and we grow. In our new minds, we we're thinking on things that are true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable, things worthy of praise. Minds fixed on things above, things of eternal significance. Looking to Christ, fixing your eyes on Christ in running this race. Not distracted by the things around you because you now have a new mind renewed by the Spirit again and again by belief in the gospel. And that belief in the gospel gives you a new heart. This new heart has new desires and we see the Lord glorified above all else with these new desires. The things that we once longed for, we no longer long for, but we have new desires for Christ above all else and Christ in all else. And rather than, rather than seek to build our own kingdoms with these new hands that have been cleansed, we are doing the work of our King and building His kingdom. And we've been equipped for this good work with these new hands to put the flesh, the old us, to death again and again, to believe again and again. This is the gospel in the Christian life. This is what it means to have your life saturated by the gospel in all of life. In whatever you're doing, you live to please the Lord. And I'm not, I've not even gotten into the benefit we receive. We, we are satisfied deeply. We receive a joy that's unspeakable. There's no other joy in this world compared to the joy of knowing Christ as our Savior. We have peace 
in circumstances that peace doesn't even make sense. We can rest in Christ. Those storms may be raging on around us. We can take a breath and trust our King who's sovereign over all things. This is the work of the gospel. And we trust Him. We lean into Him. Yet in this Christian life, there are struggles and there are pitfalls. There's suffering in this life. And no, no one can deny their suffering. If you say you're not, you're lying. If you say it's all easy, you're lying. In fact, Christ told us it wouldn't be easy. And many times, the suffering and the struggling and the pitfalls are brought on by ourselves. We often are our greatest enemy, and we fight against our, our new nature to go back to the old nature. We indulge again in the sins from our past lives. Though we've been made new, we habitually return to the sin. And these pitfalls are snares set in our lives in the path before us to trap us and thwart the mission of God, that more disciples would be made, that God would be glorified in the salvation of many by the work of His church. And so we get caught up in these things. And if we're talking about living a life saturated with the gospel, this good news, it's necessary that we see good things in life. And we pry open the dark spaces in our life. And we shine light where light has never been shown. And we see the things that are messy and difficult and sensitive and and uncomfortable, and we talk about them. That light may shine where darkness is and liberation may come from the truth that is proclaimed. And so all of that is an introduction to this very difficult topic of divorce. We just read this passage, and if you were listening to it, and then heard me give the introduction, you might be like, where's he going with this? Well, the gospel has something to say about divorce. If you are a disciple of Christ, there's no part of your life that belongs to you. And if you believe the gospel, it changes all of you. And there must be an ongoing surrender of all things to our King. And it's somewhat ironic because the more you give of yourself, the more you gain. The more you sacrifice the flesh, the more freedom, the more peace, the more joy there is to be found in Christ. And this is the mysterious and beautiful work of the gospel. And the Apostle Paul knows this well. And so he spent much of this book, this letter to the Corinthians, writing about that very thing, how good the gospel is. And he takes time to address directly some specific questions they're asking. And that's what we're getting into in this, in this chapter 7. He's paused, he's transitioned to address some specific things in, in Corinth. So consider this. The Apostle Paul, a real man who lived on the earth, is answering real questions from real believers who are struggling with real things, much like us today. Though their context is vastly foreign, their spiritual needs, their struggling, the perplexing questions are very much what we struggle with today. What behaviors should the believer have in the world? considering all, the, all that's going on around us. And here in chapter 7, he offers some instruction and some encouragement concerning relationships. And in a general sense, just the faithful belonging to God, no matter what's going on in, around you, no matter your life circumstance, you belong to God. To summarize the chapter as a whole, though we've already covered, <clears throat> last week we covered the first part of it. To summarize the chapter as a whole, I've, I've written just three kind of main points I think you can get from this chapter. 
First, worship God in your marriage by fully enjoying intimacy with your spouse. Stay single if you can, marry if you must, but remember the present world is passing away and you can't take marriage with you. And thirdly, in whatever situation you've been called to by God, intentionally live to to the glory of Christ. That's what he's saying as he's answering these questions. Practically and specifically, he's saying, worship God in your marriage by enjoying each other physically. If you're single, stay single. Unless you have to get married, then get married. But whatever the case, remember, this is temporary and there's an eternity to look to. And then lastly, wherever you are in life, whatever situation you find yourself in, intentionally live to glorify Christ. Now, specifically, he's writing concerning sex, broken marriage, and singleness. That's what the whole chapter is about. Sex, broken marriage, and singleness. Each could present a threat to the mission. Each could be complicated and and make us veer way off course and forget all about the mission. But a healthy view of sex, a biblical covenantal marriage, and a single life devoted to the kingdom of God has great benefit to the church and great benefit to the mission. And that's what we're seeking to discover. Now, Jared, or as I like to call him, Reverend Gerard, I don't really. He covered sex last week, thankfully, so I'm not going to talk about that. In fact, he said the word sex more than I've ever heard in a sermon. And so, so I'm going to try not to say it often today. Basically, though, to summarize that sermon, singles should not have sex, and married people should have more sex. All my married people, amen. You guys need to be more vocal. Check out the podcast on that because that wasn't a good summary, but it's close enough. It's, uh, it's available on the app or podcast stores, whatever that is. But this week we're going to discuss a, a difficult topic, divorce. Um, and, it, and this is part of the benefit of expository preaching, working through a book of the Bible. I, if I had a choice, I, I probably wouldn't preach on divorce today. But thankfully, the Lord saw that we need it he put it in his word and led us to it. And we're going to proclaim it with, with all the gospel truth that needs to be proclaimed alongside it. And then next week, we'll discuss singleness um, and, and more specifically being exactly who God's called you to be. Now, if you think that divorce doesn't apply to you today, if you're a believer, I want to tell you it does because it's the word of God. It's, it's profitable for you in the mission whoever you may come in contact with, benefit from this. And if you are thinking about skipping next week because singleness doesn't apply, if you're a believer, it does. It's the Word of God. It's beneficial. Lean in. Hear what he has to say. And for the Apostle Paul, and I would agree, these practical things as they're laid out are not just for learning new things. It's not just to know right from wrong. It isn't about making a list of rules to follow. There's much more to this. We must go deeper and consider what he has to say. So with that 15-minute introduction, let's get into this passage. 1 Corinthians 7, starting in verse 10. I'm going to read a little bit and then we'll do some breakdown. To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does... She should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. So the moral character, or the, the, 
the, the moral scene, the atmosphere in ancient Rome, or specifically here in Corinth, was low, to say the least. There wasn't much to it. Divorce was rampant. In fact, where marriage did exist, divorce was very common. Among, among the, the lower caste of people, the, the, the bond servants, there wasn't a real sense of covenantal marriage, but where it did exist, it, there wasn't a lot of commitment to it. They were frequently changing partners. And among those, the common people who had an informal covenant of marriage, it was easily broken. Whenever they felt like it, they could just leave and join up with another. And these are people who are coming to know Christ. And so these things are being brought into the light. And on top of that, immorality was left unchecked as a whole. And marriage was distorted in, in the sense, in the way God created it. It was no longer viewed that way. In fact, many Romans had many wives, and, and their wives were mainly just to keep the house together, to do the, the cooking and the things around the house while their sexual needs were provided for by their concubines. So there, there wasn't any sense of this is sacred, this is holy, this is set apart by God to be something more than what you're treating it as. And this practice was everywhere. Fornication was everywhere. Adultery was everywhere. And the Christians in Corinth, now having been taught biblical views, are understandably confused and have a lot of questions. So they write to Paul, and now he's addressing these questions. Women in Judaism did not have the right to divorce their husband, but in the Greco-Roman society, it was common. It was a form of divorce called divorce by separation. So this is the reason for the terminology shift. If a woman separates, she should not separate from her husband in the divorce for the, for the husband of his wife. But truly, it's the same thing. It's divorce by separation. It's leaving and not coming back. And then it's a disavowing of whatever covenant, however weak it was, that was created. And so there, there's this need for the Christian church to understand just because you can doesn't mean you should. The believer truly is free to do whatever. Paul writes of this. You're truly free. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. And if you are truly in Christ, you would see obedience produces fruit. Following Jesus, worshiping him in all of life is for your good and his glory. And only those who truly believe the gospel can experience this. It would be no, no big deal for Paul to say everything is permissible if you truly believe because there's many things you see are not beneficial because you now are looking to Christ. So can you, ask of any believer, can you? The answer is yes, but should you, is it beneficial? So what is most beneficial? If we live in a culture where divorce is prevalent and easy, it would seem to better represent Christ and, and the power of the gospel and the marks of unconditional love, it would seem we should not seek divorce. It seems most beneficial to remain married as a testament to the strength of our God. But that said, Paul is talking specifically about this group of super celibates that Jared mentioned last week, this group of people who think celibacy is more holy. I should go without it. And the best way to do that is to get a divorce. And then there's those who are left not wanting to be celibate who are being divorced. And so they're going to find a partner elsewhere. But when you think about it, it's kind of like the youth group girl who says, I don't think we can be together anymore because I need to work on my relationship with Jesus. But then you see her next week holding hands at the mall with Tyrone. I'm just, 
That's too specific. That did not happen to me. I'm just kidding. It really didn't happen. Anyway, you get what I'm saying. So Paul's addressing it and he says, you know what? If you're going to get a divorce, don't remarry. In fact, you should only reconcile with your husband or stay single. That's the reason behind this wording, because he's talking about this group of people who are, who are possibly using this as an excuse to be with someone else, but even more so, don't know what they're doing. And they're going to get divorced to try to be celibate, but that's not how they were created. They were created to be married. That's why they're married. Though for some, singleness may be a gift. So he's saying, if you do get a divorce, don't remarry. Now, there's more to be said about that. We're going to slowly move towards some, some deeper connections. But... There's the general idea, and, and there's also a general principle that Paul's agreeing with the teachings of Christ. That's why he says, not I, but the Lord. So the teachings of Christ on divorce, we went through the book of Mark a while back. The teachings of Christ are divorce is not an option. Divorce is not the answer, except for in the case of adultery. So when Jesus addresses divorce, he's speaking to a form of divorce that permits a husband to leave his wife whenever he feels like, for whatever reason, and he just does it. And in a system where women are oppressed and outcast without a family. So both Paul and Jesus are speaking specifically to a no-fault type of divorce that either spouse could leave and end the marriage whenever they feel like it. With no biblical justification, And in this case, it is a disgrace to the covenant vows of marriage. So it's forbidden. It's a disgrace to who God is. So still, the question is, is there a benefit at any point to divorce? Are there circumstances in which divorce is best and most beneficial? And I would say, I think there is. Just to give you some ideas... Stay with me. I don't know who's upset about it, but stay with me. Some ideas of what might be a possible benefit. If it's the lesser of two wrongs, for example, if you are so miserable in your marriage that you want to murder your spouse or commit suicide to get out of it, I would suggest divorce is a better option. Okay, glad <laughs> we can agree on that. But there are deeper issues. If there's a habitual sinful behavior that is somehow damaging to an individual in the family, it's somewhat subjective here, but creating an unhealthy environment for children or for either the spouse or or, or you yourself or the spouse, if it is emotionally damaging, physically damaging, psychologically damaging to a point that is irreconcilable, then I would say divorce is a better option. If reconciliation has become impossible after abuse, after adultery, after any sexual immorality, if it has become impossible to reconcile, and, and that, may, that means you are able to forgive, but the reestablishing of trust and a loving relationship is not possible, then of course, there's nothing you can do about it. Truly, nothing's impossible for God, so He can move and work. But a case-by-case application of this principle allows for the fact that maybe divorce is beneficial. Now, I say all that with pause, with hesitation, and even with a sense of regret, because it's not about defining divorce as much as it is about understanding a covenant. 
to answer the question just straight out, is it ever acceptable to pursue divorce beyond explicitly stated case of adultery? With hesitancy, I say yes, you can. But divorce is tragic. Divorce is a travesty. It's devastating. It's death. It's breaking an unbreakable covenant. There's a great sense of heaviness for many who, like myself, have experienced the effects of divorce in my family. This is a heavy topic. And along with all types of death, there should be a grieving, a mourning when we consider divorce. But most clearly, divorce may be justifiable only where a spouse is clearly manifesting a radical refusal to respect one's marital commitment and maintain the fundamental integrity of a marriage. So in a sense, more than signing a legal sheet of paper, divorce happens in the heart when the covenant is broken. There can be this fight to remain, to recover, to reconcile. It can be a work of the Spirit of God. But it doesn't always work that way. So when it is broken, we emphasize the grace of God. And the weight that is felt, the cost that is counted, must be done before marriage. Because the covenant is what matters. There is a weight to the covenant. There's a cost to the bonds of marriage. Two becoming one is far more significant than signing a sheet of paper. And divorce is far more significant than than signing a sheet of paper. I've done five marriages, and the first thing I emphasize every time is divorce is not an option. It must be hammered down before even considering performing a wedding. I want to make clear divorce is not an option. The only way out of marriage is death because these vows exist for a reason. The covenant is serious because it's not about you and it's not about you and your spouse. It's about God. And of course, when I'm talking about marriage, I'm talking about two believers. That's what Paul is addressing in these first two verses, a marriage between believers. Marriage was designed with permanence by God. Marriage is primarily a promise to God and then to one another. It's meant to be for life and divorce is breaking that commitment. So it is, by definition, against the revealed will of God to divorce because that's the nature of a covenant. That's Mark 10, 9. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now, I know your spouse is a sinner, but you knew that going in. I know that he or she doesn't meet all of the expectations. Not all the conditions are met. They're weak exactly where you would like them to be strong. They're struggles that I cannot understand in your marriage. I get it. Divorce is not an option, according to the Word of God. So married couples, keep the covenant by pursuing purity and peace to the glory of God. As long as it depends on you, fight for unity. Church, if your marriage is troubled, trust me, I empathize. I I feel the weight of it. But fight for it. Do what is necessary. If you and your spouse are believers, trust the work of the Spirit and fight. Fight, because it's worth the fight. Let's continue. 
verse 12. We are, so we're to love one another well, to plan for it, to work at it. And that's for the married couple who are both Christians. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, so Paul, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So this is only the case when, it, when two unbelievers are married and one comes to know Christ. So two non-believers, two not Christian people are married already and one comes to know Jesus. What do we do about this is their question. So there is this recommend, there's never a recommendation in Scripture anywhere that a believer should marry an unbeliever. It's never the case. In fact, it's forbidden. In fact, I would say it's impossible because a Christian marriage is a covenant between two believers before God. So he's saying, if you are both unbelievers, one gets saved, don't divorce. We'll break that down a little more in just a second. Verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. So this is understanding of salvation that's not justification, but a, a being made holy, a work of sanctification in someone's life. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. So this idea of unclean, it, it, I would say it could be three senses of, of the term. So in a legal sense, they, could be, they would be legitimate children if you remain married instead of illegitimate. In a Jewish sense, they were ceremonially unclean if there's divorce but I think most likely in a spiritual sense, the unbelieving spouse and the children are sharing in the blessings of the one Christian in the household. So remain married for the sake of them sharing in the blessings of a Christian. Verse 15, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Given all that we, we've heard over the last couple of weeks about sexual morality and about sex between a, a, a married couple and the encouragement to do so as an act of worship to God, all by His design, given all of that, what does it mean for a marriage between a Christian and an unbeliever? Moreover, Christian is a... Or, Scripture is abundantly clear that a Christian should not be joined with an unbeliever. Truly, they cannot be joined. There is no fellowship with light and dark. The child of God cannot be with a child of disobedience. But it is the case. So what do we do about it, Paul? That's the question. Hey, we need some help here. It's a good question. The concern is that purity will be defiled by the unbelieving spouse. But Paul writes that it's actually the opposite. It's possible that God used this marriage to save your spouse. That there would be a work of sanctification in this. So Paul's unaware of the teachings of Jesus on this topic specifically. So he says, I, not the Lord. However, it's Paul and he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. So his opinion is unlike ours. He speaks here with the inspired, as the inspired word of God and the authority carried with Paul's word in Scripture is all the authority that Christ carried with his words. He says, in this case, don't divorce. As long as it depends on you, don't divorce. 
So this is no doubt a difficult task on the calling, and a calling for the believer to fight this fight, to struggle in this way. However, it is a command of God, so you can be sure the Lord is faithful and sovereign over it. In verse, verse 16, this, this freedom, this sense of, I'm not responsible for salvation, but I will work towards that, is the same thing we find in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-12. through 12. I'm not going to read it, but Peter encourages husbands and wives to love one another in such a way that the spouse may be one to Christ by the demonstration of the gospel. This is the power of the gospel. That it would be proclaimed and demonstrated. Fruit would be seen and the eyes of the blind would be opened upon hearing the word of God and seeing it lived out. There's hope there. However, marriage is not primarily evangelistic. It's not meant that you would save anyone through a relationship of marriage because it's a covenant vow for companionship and fellowship and a model of unconditional love. Therefore, a believing partner should not stay with an unbelieving partner in a situation where abuse or prolonged absence of love is there simply for the sake of evangelism. And that's the freedom we find in verse 16. God God has called you to peace. How do you even know that your spouse would be saved? Because God does that work. So if they're unwilling to stay with you physically or even emotionally, I would say, You're free. You're not enslaved to that. And for all intents and purposes, it seems Paul is handling this marriage similarly to the marriage of two believers in the case that you should not divorce. Can you? Yes. But is it beneficial? Maybe not. If you are a married Christian, the underlying thing here is you stay married. Divorce should not be considered an option. But my son, Titus, has this thing he likes to say to me a lot that forces us to go deeper into this. It's this phase of life, single favorite word in life right now, is the question, why? Before I even said it, his mom said it. It doesn't even have to make sense to ask the question why in the circumstance. He's going to ask it. Why? Now, if I don't just do the thing that parents do, we're like, because I said so, then it gets deeper. And sometimes he really challenges me to think of the purpose of things in life. For example, it's time for bed. Why? Because we need sleep. Why? Because everybody has to sleep. This is a a real annoyance in my voice that happens. Why? Because resting our minds and our bodies is important. Why? Well, you get where I'm going here. If we really ask that question about specifically that thing, God has designed us, and I I would use smaller words to Titus, but God has designed us in such a way that we benefit from rest. And sleep is necessary for humanity. In fact, if you go without sleep, you could die. Sleep is necessary to survive. God has designed us in a way, even before the fall, that we would rest. And our bodies are finite, and we feel it at the end of a day. And we need rest. And in that need, we're made aware of God's provision. Sleep. How He has graciously provided this escape from the torment of a lack of sleep. And as a new father again, I can tell you it's tormenting not to sleep. And as we are increasingly aware of our finiteness, we are more aware of God's infiniteness. 
He is so big and so great and so powerful and so good, and he satisfies every need we could ever have. That's why we need to go to bed right now. So the question why I can get us somewhere, and here's the point. If the command is divorce is never an option, you should not divorce, we should ask why. It's okay to ask why. And I think we can find some answers. It's not merely about obedience, enslaved to following. It's about honoring the name of the Lord. If we ask, why is divorce not an option? Because breaking promises is wrong. Why? Because Jesus said so. Why? There are plenty of practical reasons, but the answer must come back to who God is, just like the answer to why we sleep comes back to who God is. Why is divorce wrong? Because when a believer leaves a covenant, when a a believer breaks a covenant, it tells a lie about God. Does the Lord forsake us? Does Christ abandon his bride? Does he break promises? Does Christ cheat on his church? Never. For this reason, we consider divorce case by case rather than this legalistic burden to never divorce. It's not merely about obedience. It's about honoring the name of the Lord, who is your God. In many cases, a legal divorce is just calling it what it is. The covenant's long been broken. But we're sure to discover in our obedience and our worship of God that we are deeply satisfied. That through the suffering, through the torment of it all, we are satisfied in keeping the covenant. Because like any good father, he knows what his children needs, so he makes these commands. Now, I know Titus needs sleep, so I demand he goes to bed, no matter how how much he doesn't want to. Our Father knows what's best for us, and so He gives us these commands. So that's why it's a paradox that I would stand up here before you, and you might be confused, and I keep saying, divorce is not an option. But sometimes it's beneficial. It's a hard truth, but it's like any truth in the Christian life. You should not sin, but do you sin? Yes, sin is never beneficial, but you trick yourself into thinking it's an escape So I would always hold fast to, I think it's better to never divorce. It's the word of God. But God has graciously, like he did with Moses to the people in Israel, given this escape, this release, because of the sin in the world. And he did with Christ. Though Christ says sin is never an option but for the case of adultery, I think there's more to that. I don't think it should ever be. I'm not correcting Jesus, but I see the value in covenant. In every case, we don't look to leave marriage without a biblical cause. In fact, if a man leaves without a biblical cause, he rejects Christ in 1 Timothy 5.8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially the members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. A healthy Christian marriage and subsequently a healthy Christian family may be one of the most powerful witnesses to a culture that sees relationships as disposable, much like the ancient Roman world saw relationships. 
So where there has already been failure and damage, I want to emphasize there is grace. If you feel buried in shame because of your past or your present situation, there's grace because our Father is gracious. If you are in Christ, Christian, you are in Christ. That's why I gave the long introduction of gospel. Because if you are in Christ, you are blameless. You are holy. You are set apart. If you are in Christ, there is no room for shame. Take heart. Christ has overcome the world. If you are in Him, you are no longer condemned. His grace is sufficient. Every promise in this book is yours because of Christ. Because we have a merciful King. The standard to belong to His kingdom is unbelievably great. The bar is unbelievably high. You can never jump over that bar. The standard to belong to Christ is impossible. It's huge. But so is the grace of God. The Lord knew we would need Him. The Lord knew we would fail. And that's why Christ, the perfect sacrifice, was nailed to a cross. But do you believe the gospel? I ask you often because knowing it is not enough. Do you believe you're forgiven? Do you believe you're blameless and holy because Christ has clothed you in his righteousness? Do you feel the sense of liberation when that truth is proclaimed? Do you sense it in the room right now? Do you see Christ is near to you because you are in him? You are not condemned. No matter your sin, you are not condemned because Christ has accomplished everything. There's freedom in Him. Now, in, now to all who are struggling, in all of your struggling, in all of your persevering, in all the difficulties that come with marriage, it's imperative you know you're not alone. Not only do you have the Word of God as your foundation and the framework for your home, but you have the Spirit of God living within you. The, the same Spirit that rose Christ from the dead is within you to overcome anything, any obstacle in your life. But also you have this gift, the community of Christ. We bear one another's burdens. We carry this with one another, but it's necessary for you to open up. It's necessary for you to open your mouth, for you to make the, ne- the, the need known so that we can share this with you. And we'll fail again and again, but Christ is sufficient. His grace is sufficient. Don't believe the lie that you're alone in this struggle. Be encouraged. The Lord has made every, every need you have. He has made a provision. He's going to show you grace. There will be mercy. There will be freedom. There will no longer be condemnation. So don't feel burdened by the command of God. Feel liberated by His truth. Feel comforted by this truth. And in all of your doing, ask yourself, what is the desire of my heart? Is it to please God or indulge the flesh? Are you seeking to be a testament of God and His love and His power and His grace to save? Are you aiming to honor the King and expanding His kingdom? If so, then you are doing what is good. You are doing what is beneficial. These things cannot be accomplished in our rebellion, and they cannot be accomplished in our legalistic, reluctant, obligatory submission to the rules. They are accomplished by believing the gospel, trusting the Lord. He is serious about our obedience, but He is also serious about His grace. He hates evildoers, 
but he loves his children. The death of Christ has demonstrated both his mercy and his wrath. So celebrate this by praising him in all of life and praise him in your marriage. Whether you are married, divorced, remarried, widowed, never married, whatever the case, in the end, what we see most clearly is the Lord is glorified in our total devotion to Him in whatever you're doing. So now these things that you've been taught are not simply for your education. They're not simply for, to comfort you. I'm not seeking to ease your conscience. I'm seeking to point you to Jesus. There's nothing else sufficient. Praise the Lord with thankful hearts because of His gospel. With new minds and new hearts and new hands, as new creation, go, follow Him, worship Him, obey Him, and make disciples proclaiming this truth. Teach them to obey Him. That others might be liberated as well. And so let's praise Him now. Let's pray. Father, it's no easy task sometimes to proclaim truth Though there might be much that was said that is confusing or misleading, though I would never intend to be so, I pray that Your Spirit do a work in each of us. That everyone heard these words proclaimed today would take away this liberating truth that Christ is King. That You are merciful, gracious, glorious God. I pray that we would sing songs that praise You as we partake in the Lord's Supper, as we give tithes and offerings, as we fellowship with one another. And all of it, God, be worshipped. pray for anyone here struggling today to forgive themselves or feel, feel buried under the guilt and the shame, the hurt of divorce. Ask that your spirit would draw near, that you would show yourself sufficient to comfort like no man can, that we would be free to celebrate a gracious king. In Jesus' name, amen.